0: How serious do you take your Christian walk? How serious are you about the Bible? Does it bother you when Christians, pastors, and leaders play fast and loose with the Scripture? What if I told you that the fastest way, the fastest way to destroy Christianity is to destroy the Scripture? Welcome to the Reformed Rant. Today is July 13th, and this is episode 33, and I'm ranting about modern Christians' understanding of and attitude toward the Bible and why it matters. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Question. have you ever read psalm 119 if if you have then you know the bible's opinion of itself but this is the very heart of the problem isn't it modern christians don't read psalm 119 for the most part they don't pay attention to it when they do Modern Christians do not give a rat's hind end about the Bible or its opinion of itself. But somehow, we're supposed to believe them. We're supposed to listen. We're supposed to take them seriously when they say they care about the ontological triune God revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I might add, the knowledge of this very work of the God they supposedly care desperately about, is specifically contained in Scripture. Yes, the very book they care so much about, the book that they don't read, the book that they do not know, the book that they do not live. This is the problem, folks. You want to figure out why there's such chaos in the church. You want to understand why the social justice movement is where it is. You want to understand why the racialism nonsense and the reparations and the the affirmative action for Christianity is in the shape that it is in. You want to understand why even Christians are adopting godless, hateful, Attitudes toward civil authorities and even law enforcement officers. You want to understand why homosexuality, the queer, the queerness, the queering, the perversion of human sexuality is actually now entering the church. And if it isn't entering the church, the church is being encouraged to apologize for the way that they've treated People who give God the middle finger by engaging in the most vile, ungodly, and unnatural, perverse sexual behavior human beings could ever engage in. We're sorry. You want to know why people like Beth Moore have the platform they have? Why pastors and leaders in Christianity? that have traditionally been going all the way back to the very beginning, led by men, godly men, who were courageous, men who take stands on the truth, is now being led by effeminate men and women in these places of authority and leadership. You want to know why? You don't have to go any further than the attitude of modern Christians toward Scripture, toward the Bible. Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4 says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not Be afraid, what can flesh do to me? And just a few verses later, the psalmist continues and says, In God, once again, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I've heard modern preachers and teachers actually play the moron, the fool, by claiming that to worship the Bible is idolatry. Not according to the only source we have that forbids idolatry. What a stupid notion bibliolatry is. And if you have ever hinted at that, I, I'm, I'm going to encourage you right now. Try to get around my bluntness on this rant, which is what a rant is. It's, it's blunt. Try to get around that and swear to yourself, make a promise to yourself that you will never, ever say such a stupid thing again. It is okay to elevate and worship the word of the Lord. Because the word of the Lord cannot be separated from the Lord. Whatever God says is perfect and right and glorious. Why do so many modern pastors then, guys like Joel Osteen, Andy Stanley, Wade Burleson, neglect scripture or corrupt it by imposing on it inserting into it modern western pagan values why well the answer is really simple guys <clears throat> their false converts are highly offended by the bible by what the bible teaches you don't have to look very far to see this modern modern western christians And I say Western, I'm sure this is a problem in its own right across all cultures. But I say Western because it happens to be the culture in which I live. It happens to be the culture that I'm observing and I'm watching these things going on, happening, taking place. They are offended by the Bible. Just look at issues and you will see the offense that comes through. I've said many times on the issue of slavery, unless you understand that slavery is not an absolute immoral idea. Absolute, then you, your Christianity will collapse because the question is, is re- it's real simple did ancient biblical christianity permit embrace the idea of human slavery And the answer is yes, it did That's offensive That is offensive To say that God is speaking in his word And that there is one right way To understand the text of scripture As it is conveying information about God And reality to the human person. That's offensive. To say that Jesus Christ is the only way to God and that faith in Him is absolutely necessary and that requires the preaching of the gospel, that's offensive. What about all the people in the world who've never heard the gospel? That's offensive. That kind of God is a monster a God who would send men to hell who had never heard the gospel and had not had a chance to make a decision and ask Jesus into their heart. See, this this is the problem. It is the incompetence. It's the attitude toward the Bible, and that attitude toward the Bible, that attitude toward the Bible unavoidably translates into, leads to, Ignorance about the Bible Because if if your attitude toward the Bible Is not what it should be Well then why would you invest So much time and energy In your life Trying to understand Its contents You wouldn't You just wouldn't And as we look across the landscape In modern American Evangelicalism you can understand. You begin to understand why there are so many false converts in the church. Why the church doesn't fence its own community. Why the church allows people to bring scorn and ridicule and blasphemy to the name of Christ by refusing to excommunicate false teachers, the greedy, the corrupt, the liars, The sexually impure, the false teachers, top to bottom. Top to bottom. Now, like it or not, like it or not, as the Bible goes, so goes Christianity. Every sliver of your knowledge about Jesus Christ and about the ontological triune God of Scripture comes to the regenerated mind through the revelation of God in Scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit on that mind. The Holy Spirit worked in men to give us Scripture, God speaking through these men. And the Holy Spirit on the other side of this equation works in the minds of Christians. First of all, regenerating us so that We are able now to recognize his voice. What do you think Jesus meant when he said, My sheep know my voice. The voice of Jesus is the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. That is the voice of the shepherd, you see. And the only way we can really know his voice, recognize it, like the sheep, recognizes that voice of the shepherd as if the Holy Spirit regenerates our minds and hearts, regenerates our person. Now, true, every human being knows that God exists. They know that God is there. The image of God is imprinted on your conscience and mine. You are aware, you are aware. We are all aware of his presence around us. And his law, we are aware, stands over us. It's funny to watch atheists try to come up with every, every possible hypothesis or theory under the sun to account for the idea of morality. Morality. And they can't do it. Every attempt falls on its face. I don't meant that, but it, it does. When placed under rational scrutiny, every attempt to account for the experience of human morality reduces to irrationalism. If you are to know God. You can only do that through the revelation that comes to us by way of the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. We are cutting off with our low view of Scripture and our casual attitude in how we approach the Scripture and understand the Scripture, read the Scripture, if we're even doing that, and apply the Scripture to our lives we are cutting off the only source of life and peace and joy that we have. If you want to destroy Christianity, destroy Scripture. If you want to confuse Christians, turn the Bible into a confused muddled work. If you want Christians to stop taking Christianity seriously, Stop taking the Bible seriously. Okay. Now this is part two, sort of, of my previous podcast, my last podcast, on who wrote the Bible. <clears throat> and we said, uh, basically, that the, the Bible is the product primarily of, of a divine author who, who brought it or brings it to us, brought it to us, through the work of the Holy Spirit as he moved fallible men to write this infallible work So, <clears throat> the Bible then uh, will move to the next um, let's say, objection or critique or criticism of Christianity's view toward the Bible. And this is Christianity's view toward the Bible. If you do not have a high view of Scripture, you're not a Christian. It's real simple. If you reject the inerrancy and the inspiration of the Bible, there's two things about you that that must be true. You are either a very young Christian who has just been converted to Christianity, and the Holy Spirit will work in you to remove that sinful view in short order, and it won't take a lot of time. You've been around for a long time, you've been in the church for a while, and you have adopted the the view of the, a view of the Bible that's low, and you believe the Bible contains errors, and, and that you have the right to basically comb through the Bible and point out the errors, point out where they got it wrong, point out uh, areas where the values of the Bible are just inconsistent with what we know to be uh, good moral values. Well, then you, you don't know Christ, and you shouldn't be in the church. And if I had any say about it whatsoever, you would be excommunicated from the body because you're a cancer. You're a vile, filthy, rotten cancer in the body that needs to be removed. Really simple. Yeah, and so someone may say, oh my goodness, I cannot believe that you would talk to people that way or that you would take up that sort of attitude. Look, if you read in the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul when he was dealing with the Judaizers that was that were coming in and creating problems for the Church of Jesus Christ, the church that he loved, the church that Paul loved above everything else, except for his love for God. Paul said, I wish these false teachers would castrate themselves. Castrate themselves. Paul is on record as referring to these individuals as ravenous wolves creeping in. Jude said that they sneak in. They're liars. They're spies. Peter called them pigs and vomit-eating dogs. So, you know, uh, I think I'm on safe ground to describe you just this way how the Bible describes you. Jesus, Jesus called them vipers. Whited sepulchers. Pretty on the outside but on the inside full of dead men's bones. Okay, so here we go. The Bible it is claimed is is the product of fallible men. Therefore, the Bible has to be fallible too. In other words, you will hear people say that fallible men cannot produce an infallible book like the Bible. Therefore, the Bible is not fallible. The Bible the Bible contains errors because the men who wrote it were not perfect men. Okay, so... <clears throat> Let's talk about this for a little bit. This is really the the thrust of today's rant. Now, the assumption behind this claim is the claim, uh, the assumption behind this claim, which is the claim behind the question, who wrote the Bible. Put it like this: is based on the uncritical assumption that there is no God, no supernatural and that miracles are impossible, for the most part. That's the assumption behind this claim. And if it isn't outright, um, overt atheism, it's practical atheism that lies underneath this claim. But isn't that exactly the issue that we're debating? Isn't it? See, the unbeliever has to presuppose that his position is true. Just to ask this question, to take this attitude toward the Bible. Now, first, the Bible is not just the product of men. We covered this in my previous podcast. It is the product of God moving through men to right what we call the Bible. It's God speaking through his agents, which God can do. You cannot accept the God who creates ex nihilo and then reject the God who is capable of producing or speaking through men or producing a perfect scripture through fallible men. How does that work. Surely, if God can create something from nothing, he can work through men to produce a perfect book. Can't he? Of course he can. This is what Christianity believes. If you do not believe this, you are rejecting one of the basic tenets of Christianity— Second, it is a logical fallacy to claim that a fallible human cannot produce a perfect document. So not only is this objection presupposing atheism, not only is the objection um, absolutely outside the purview of Christian, basic Christian doctrine, a rejection of basic Christian doctrine. It is Not logically consistent. It can't be sustained in reality. It's a logical fallacy. It is a non sequitur, which means the conclusion does not follow from the claim. And here's the argument. All men are fallible. All men are fallible. Men wrote the Bible. Right there you have your first and second premise. Your major your minor premise. All men are fallible. Men wrote the Bible. Therefore, the Bible is fallible. Uh, hmm. How in the world is that supposed to work? Logically, that is what we call a non sequitur, which means that if you look at the first two premises, you look at the first two premises, does the conclusion necessarily follow from the first two premises? And the answer is no, it does not. And when you have an argument like that, you have a fallacious argument which means that you have to go back and start over you need to you need to work on it let me give you let me give you a counter argument to illustrate or demonstrate why that argument is wrong is fallacious all men are fallible i keep the major premise i'm going to change the minor premise and the conclusion all men are fallible Men write sentences. Therefore, there are no infallible sentences. See how that works? Are there perfect sentences? Hmm. Good question. We'll come back to that. You see how it works? Let's let's try it again. A fallible man cannot produce an infallible or perfect document. Fallible men produce the Bible. Therefore, the Bible cannot be infallible or perfect. Hmm. You see. Now, as can be dis- demonstrated in reality, reality, folks, the major premise is false. What is the major premise again? A fallible man cannot produce an infallible or perfect document. That's false. If it is the case that fallible men cannot produce a perfect document, document, then it should also be the case that a fallible man cannot produce a perfect sentence. But we know that that is not true. Humans construct perfect sentences every day. What is a book but a composition of sentences? So if it is possible, if a perfect sentence can be constructed by a Imperfect person Why not a perfect book There's nothing about the imperfection Of a human being That necessarily logically Means They cannot produce Perfection ever In anything whatsoever I don't think people understand What we mean by perfect Now the Bible is more Than just a perfect book constructed by extraordinarily talented men much more because someone may say well what you've all you've done is just shown that that the bible could be produced without errors in it even by sinners that's logically possible and that is absolutely true that is the case that is possible but if that is the case if the bible itself even were produced by sinners, and it happens to be without error. Well, then, that's going to rule out the possibility that there's anything in the Bible that isn't true. And so one of the things that the Bible says about itself is that it is the product of God. The Scriptures are God-speaking. And if the Bible even if it were written by imperfect sinners as a human book and, it's per, and it, they produced a perfect book, then that statement that the Bible is God speaking is true, which means that it cannot be just the product of imperfect sinners who happened to write a perfect book because the perfect book itself claims to be more than that. You see how that works? All right, so <clears throat> to add insult to injury, this argument does not get better. The second premise is also false. Fallible men produced the Bible, they did not. That premise implies that the Bible is the product of only fallible men, and it isn't. It According to Christianity and according to itself, Is primarily authored by God Secondarily, that authorship took place through men So the Bible is both a divine and human product Now whatever God speaks is infallible God is incapable of being wrong, you see The Bible in its original form in the autographs is God speaking. Therefore, the Bible is infallible because God can't be wrong. If the Bible is God speaking and God speaking can't be wrong, then it follows that the Bible cannot be wrong. And when I say the Bible, I'm talking about the Bible in its original form that's what christianity affirms so then we we say okay well we what do we have do we we don't have the original we do not have the original we have an accurate copy of a copy of a copy of the original a reliable accurate copy of the original now this this kind of conversation you're having with someone may take you into the area of textual criticism. I I doubt it, but it might. Uh, It's not likely that you're going to run into uh, people who are objecting Scripture who are also well-informed on textual criticism. If they are well-informed on textual criticism, they're probably going to avoid the area. Anyhow, because they know that the field of textual criticism does not do anything to bolster their criticism of the Bible. It, in fact, goes the other way. So I wouldn't worry too much about about that. However, that said, I would say that it is a good idea for you, as a Christian, to know something about the history of the Bible. You see, the originals, the first copies, the early copies of the originals, and then how we move from those autographs to the early ancient copies to translations and to the actual printed Greek text and modern translations themselves. You should know something about that. Someone would say, well, I don't have time. Don't talk to me about how much time Americans have to investigate the history of their own faith. Talk to me about that. That's Utterly ridiculous. Your pastor treats you with kid gloves. He's delicate with you. He doesn't want to hurt your feelings. He doesn't want to call you lazy because you won't read about your own history. You love Jesus. Jesus is the most important thing in the world to you, but you very rarely read the Bible. You very rarely spend any time reading anything about historical Christianity or about the Bible. You don't know the history of the Bible. You don't know the history of the church. And you don't know the contents of the Bible. Yet you love Jesus with every ounce of energy you have in your being. I get it. And you're, you're an American and you spend 30 hours a week uh, watching TV. Or You run all over the place with your kids in all kinds of different sporting events and activities. And therefore, you have no time left to invest even the slightest amount of basic energy to understand the most rudimentary things, truths, facts, history about the Bible and about the history of Christianity. Can't get you to read the Bible, can't get you to read about the church, can't get you to read about the history of the Bible. But you love Jesus. Nice. Now, we move, we shift gears from who wrote the Bible, as you can see the argument against an inerrant Bible falls to pieces, uh, to who created the Bible, right? So there's this, you're going to have people who are going to challenge you on... The authorship of the Bible, but you're also going to have people who are going to challenge you on on how we have how, how the Bible came to be. And I want to say just a brief thing about this, and then then I'll rant a little bit more, and we'll we'll close this one up. Over at Josh McDowell Ministries, Sherry Bell wrote an article making the following point, as it relates to the canon of the new testament and that's when i say canon i'm talking about the 66 books of the bible so when i say canon of the new testament i'm talking about those 27 books of the new testament uh, as the scripture took its its final form and she says this i think sherry is is a she it's one r with an i so i'm i'm assuming if not i apologize By the end of the 4th century, the canon was definitively settled and accepted, but not as part of the Council of Nicaea, as some wrongly believe. The Council of Carthage established the Orthodox New Testament canon in 397 AD. It was upheld at the Council of Trent in 1545. By the way, she says, Protestants and Catholics are in agreement with their use of the same New Testament. I don't know what that last sentence is supposed to mean, but whatever. Now, um, the criticism that I'm going to offer up on this particular way of saying it, it and, and so understand this, the way that McDowell Ministries is framing this is the way that most modern Christians have been taught about the canon. So the overwhelming majority of Christians are ignorant concerning this subject, completely ignorant. If you've been in the church 15 years and you have no clue about any of this, shame on you. You should be embarrassed. Okay, I'm not going to let you off the hook. You should be utterly embarrassed. You should know something about this. You should think about this. You should spend energy thinking about this. This should be something that's on your mind. You should talk to your other Christian friends about this from time to time. This should be a topic of conversation. Shouldn't be obsessed with it, but you should know something about it. It should be part of your life it's an it's it's part of the history of the Christian church and it's not just one of those things this is one of the big ones i mean one of the huge ones if you're teaching a course on the history of Christianity this is the one that is always mentioned regardless of how high you're flying over that subject right okay so what's wrong with it well when the words Here's the sentence: The Council of Carthage established the orthodox New Testament canon in 397 AD. That is not the right way to frame the actual establishment of the canon of the New Testament, okay? The problem with this way of thinking is wrong-headed top to bottom. And here's why. No counsel of man. Established. That's the word. Underline that word. Established which books would be in Scripture and which books would not be in Scripture. Okay. Now, here's how to think about this. We have to Use an analogy. Imagine that a group of medical doctors have been charged with the task of creating a list of drugs that will create a fatal reaction to another drug. And this could be a list of drugs that can do anything. Just That could be a blank. Medical doctors are pulled in and and asked to... uh, let's just say scientists, are asked to create a list of drugs that will do X. These drugs do X. Well, in in my analogy, these drugs, when mixed with another drug, will kill you. What's the list? The doctors meet, conduct their study, provide the list. Are these drugs, here's the question, are these drugs lethally incompatible with with the particular drug in question because the doctors put them on the list I don't think so. Or is it possible that the doctors place them on the list because they are inherently, by their own natural composition, the chemicals that make them up, lethal when mixed with this other drug? I think the latter is the case. Right? The canon of Scripture is like that. Apply that thinking to the nature of the canon of Scripture. The doctors of the church merely recognized which books had the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit and which ones did not. A better analogy may be the graphologists. This handwriting expert can recognize the author of a piece of work by comparing what he wrote in one letter with what he wrote elsewhere. You see, Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. We recognize His voice. We recognize His handwriting, so to speak. Each book of Scripture is recognized to be written by the same person who regenerates us. The Holy Spirit does both. The work of the Holy Spirit is both necessary and sufficient for Christians to understand the God who created them and saved them, redeemed them, you see. That's what Christianity teaches. Now, it has to work this way because if it doesn't, then you have to say that, well, maybe the, maybe the work of the Holy Spirit is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Maybe it takes more than just the work of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it takes you doing something. Right? Now, admittedly, we can't get there unless the Holy Spirit takes us there unless he saves us, regenerates us, applies the work of redemption to us, secures us in Christ, seals us for eternal eternal life, right? To come. You can't get there apart from that. But you can, even as a Christian. You can, through your sinful attitude, quench the Holy Spirit. You can, I can, through my sinful attitude, mishandle the text because I am not submitting myself to God in every area of my life, including the area of ideas. So this, this doctrine of Scripture is vitally important to the church. It's vitally important because the scripture is the source. When we say, what's God like? We have to turn to scripture. When we say, who am I? What am I as a human being? We have to turn to scripture. When we ask the question, how should I live my life? We have to turn to scripture. How how will I be saved? How can I be saved? Where will I spend eternity? Why am I here? What should I do in this particular situation? How should I live my life? What kind of God is God? What's okay? What is not okay? What should I avoid? What should I embrace? What's good philosophy? What's bad philosophy? How should I think about politics? All of these things are informed through Scripture or by Scripture. If you remove Scripture, you must replace it with something else. Robert Gagnon said recently in a post, It isn't the infallibility infallibility of scripture that's the biggest problem in evangelicalism. And that's probably true because most evangelicals are at least going to give lip service to the view that the Bible is infallible, inerrant. The problem that Gagnon points out is the evangelical slippage on the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. It's not enough. We need something else, something more to, in order to carry out our lives and glorify God like we should. You see, this <clears throat> shows up It showed up initially, uh, the controversy around the sufficiency of Scripture. In my life, I've seen this in the world of counseling, where psychology, humanistic, pagan psychology, is being imported into the church by men like James Dobson, this integrationism they call it. Scripture isn't enough. We need psychology. right? Uh, We see this. In evangelicals' attitudes toward a variety of things, you you may see it toward uh, uh, slavery. You know, it's it's an uncomfortable thing to uh, acknowledge that Christianity doesn't condemn all forms of slavery. In fact, it provides an ethic for how slave owners should treat their slaves, but it does not provide an outright, overt, clear command that prohibits slavery in all forms. It doesn't. It doesn't exist. That's offensive. That, so people take that idea and the modern idea that slavery under any, under any form whatsoever is immoral, and they compare it to Scripture. Many liberals... Recognize this and will take an open, hostile attitude towards Scripture in these areas. I'll give you an example. Wade Burleson, who is a Southern Baptist pastor, has followers over at his blog. He and I had a a recent uh, disagreement. He has followers over, and it had to do with women pastors. He has followers at his blog who are his minions, who follow him, who read him, who are uh, fans of his, who have the wherewithal to say that the apostle Paul was wrong in what he wrote about female leadership, female pastors, females having authority. Uh, he had a problem in his attitude. Right Now this goes to the infallibility of scripture, but I just bring this up as... That's what the liberal will do. The evangelical conservative won't go that far. The evangelical conservative will continue to give lip service to their view of the infallibility of Scripture, but they will stop talking directly about these kinds of issues. They will avoid the idea that the Bible doesn't condemn slavery in all forms. They will avoid those really pointed passages that outright condemn homosexuality in the strongest language. They'll avoid it. They will ignore passages of Scripture that forbid female leadership in the churches because they're all about Social justice, uh, breaking people up into groups, this Marxist idea, this socialist kind of thinking, and they're there because they've ignored Scripture for so long. And as a result, they will ignore these other components of Scripture. And from a practical standpoint, Point, for all intents and purposes they end up in a position not thinking scripture alone is sufficient you have to do it takes more than just that right? and this is what's going on right now in the churches without scripture without the doctrine of scripture without the church's focus on scripture in the right way it loses its authority. And without biblical authority, without the Bible being our final authority, the church is reduced to one more entity based on just another religion of man, no different from any other religion of man that's been conjured up. This is why many leaders in the churches understand and appreciate the significance of the issues facing the churches today. It's why there are still men who will stand up and speak the truth. Right. Because they love God. They love God's word. They praise God's word. God's word is elevated to the highest place in their lives because they know that if they want to see what God thinks about how they should live, how they should think, how they should act, how they should talk. The only way they can know that is by looking into God's Word. And we are ordered as Christians, we submit to God in everything. We have duties and obligations to our Heavenly Father in the area of moral living, in the area of of charitable giving, pouring ourselves into the lives of others and serving others through a variety of different ways, and even in the area of ideas, and especially in the area of ideas, because it's the area of beliefs and ideas that drive how you live the rest of your life, you see. People live what they believe Everything else is just noise. Thank you for listening to the Reformed Rant. God bless. Stay in the fight. Keep the faith. Continue to proclaim the gospel at every interaction that you possibly can. Share the good news of Christ with this lost and dying world and show the world what it looks like to submit to God, to follow Christ, to repent. And believe the gospel. God bless. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network, Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you. It seems well I was